0: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. We've talked a lot in the past about how the worlds of production and distribution are changing, and how increasingly difficult it is getting your independent film to an audience. There are so many movies being made, so many places to consume them, that they are being buried. One of the ways to find that audience is on the International Film Festival circuit. The films that play there have been curated. The festival directors schedule them because they think they have value you know that it has met a certain criterion of quality by its very presence on the schedule. Genre fans and press attend these festivals by the thousands, and when a movie connects with an audience there, there's a good chance that it will find its way to you, the consumer, some way, somehow. If a movie creates a buzz, that buzz spreads, and there is no greater value added to a movie's chances than good word of mouth, even if it doesn't count on Rotten Tomatoes. I've just gone through this on Nightmare Cinema, the most independent production I've ever been involved with. I've worked on studio films, network television, series, miniseries, the whole gamut, but I've never worked harder than I have with this film to reach the audience. It's been unbelievably gratifying to watch it play at these events around the world. Denmark, Spain, Mexico, Canada, the UK, France, South Korea, and all over the USA. It's been a whirlwind for me the last year but independent genre films really need a healthy dose of TLC to find their homes. There's another way, the way of our guest on this episode. Larry Fessenden not only writes, produces, directs, and acts in films, but he has also created the production company and distribution firm that finances and puts the movies out there. His glass-eye picks has produced dozens of movies, all of them with a unique point of view, and often with first-time feature filmmakers. Larry's career is a unique one and well worth paying close attention to the conversation we had about it in front of a live audience at the Overlook Film Festival in New Orleans. You're going to learn a lot right after this. Are you a cinephile looking for a home away from home? Arena Cine Lounge is Los Angeles' premier destination for all things horror and genre cinema. With unique concession choices, the most comfortable seats in town, and movies you won't find anywhere else, Arena is your spot for a perfect cinematic experience seven nights a week. Visit us at our Hollywood location at the corner of Sunset and Wilcox or at www.arenascreen.com to view showtimes and purchase tickets. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been 40 years now, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15% off your subscription. That's Fangoria.com, promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15%. Camp Fangoria is this summer's hottest screening event for movie lovers and horror fanatics alike. Join us on Saturday, July 27th on the rooftop of the historic Montalban Theater in Hollywood for summer horror movies, special guests, premium giveaways, and hey, you might even find me and Joe there. General admission and Fangoria VIP tickets are available now at www.arenascreen.com. That's www.arenascreen.com.
1: All right, everyone. Now it's time for Postmortem with Mick Garris, live at the Overlook Film Festival. Uh, As we said before, Mick has been a huge supporter, a champion of the horror genre of this festival. He's a writer, a director, a producer. He also hosts a podcast. Uh, Postmortem is, as loyal listeners know, where some of the most influential names in horror, horror cinema get together to spill their guts, literally. So with that, please welcome our host, Mick Garris, and the director, Larry Fessenden. <laughs> Thank you. Right.
0: We are live in New Orleans, Louisiana at the Overlook Film Festival, and if you look in your dictionary, if you look up uh, independent filmmaker, there's a picture of Larry Fessenden. in there. <laughs> he does it all. He's based in New York City, where he was born. He's a writer, a producer, a director, an actor, and he owns his own very prolific film company, Glass Eye Pictures. And he's obsessed with Wendigos. Uh, we're here having just shown his new take on the Mary Shelley Frankenstein mythos, Depraved, and he's our guest here, and Mr. Larry Fessenden, thank you for joining us.
1: Well, this is a great honor. Thanks, man.
0: All right, it's so good to have you here. And I really want to talk about the independent world, because you've made a really big deal out of it. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's it's so many things. You're not just a filmmaker, you're also a studio executive. Of yeah, I'm a like CEO. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but first of all, what's the deal with Wendigos?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I went to Hollywood after I made Habit, which was a vampire story. Which you starred in, as well I as writing and directing. And, uh, and you know, everybody was interested in what my next piece would be. And, uh, and I came up with uh, a movie that wasn't horror. It was about fear, and I mm-hmm. still wish I could make it. But it was not really a scary movie, so they didn't know what to do with me. So I decided to go and make a... A scary movie, and I recall this childhood memory of this thing called the Wendigo, and I wrote it very quickly and impulsively, and it's only like a 72-page script. Well, I tell knew... us,
0: tell the audience what a Wendigo is.
1: Well, a Wendigo is a, it depends, that's what's wonderful about it, it's a very elusive creature. Uh, it's uh, an Ojibwe myth from the uh, northern parts of uh, Canada and the U.S., and the presumption is that if you get stuck in the woods, you shouldn't eat your friend, and so it's kind <laughs> of a, a cautionary yeah. mythology about um, not being uh, voracious and, and rapacious, and, and uh, so it also works for me as sort of a bigger metaphor of you know manifest destiny, and it's a cautionary tale. But the cool thing is it can be depicted as a like an antlered creature that flies around and. Um, and catches you at night. And the more it eats, the bigger it gets. And the bigger it gets, the hungrier it gets. And so I just found it very, uh, thrilling. So I made this film, Wendigo. Um, and it's really a childhood recollection of the spookiness of being in the country. And then, of course, our, our desire for mythologies and sort of to, to make sense with stories of, of our reality. So it's all those things together. And then I made a couple more Wendigo movies. It <laughs> yes. Turns out. Yeah. Including one for Fear Itself. One for Mick, yes.
0: Well, uh, not for me specifically. Close, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. We harder. can touch on the controversies of, of Fear Itself <laughs> yeah. if you like. Absolutely. But, um, you know, Skin and Bones was something that came along. And and uh, yeah. this was your idea. You'd made a documentary on the Wendigo as well. Yeah. And uh, so tell me the difference between your first Wendigo movie and your last Wendigo movie. Well, the
1: movie. thing I love about the Wendigo is it's like, uh, depends how you want to depict it. So I like, in the first movie, I have this deer creature and he's running through the woods crying, WENDIGO! And it's very spooky and he has hooves and he looks sort of like uh, a centaur. Um, but the fact is, is that, um, the Wendigo is also just a psychology. It's sort of the idea of when you lose your mind and you begin to, uh, lust after human flesh and, uh, it's considered a real thing in, in Canada. They call it the Wendigo psychosis, and it's used in trials to say, you know, why somebody went mad and ate their family. Um, so uh, the thing I loved about... Well, I called... Um, I had a, a phone call when I got the possible gig to do Fear Itself, and I pitched a werewolf story, and I pitched a couple other things. And they said, well, actually, we already have scripts, and it's a bit ironic, but we have a Wendigo script, <laughs> and I read it, and... Uh, I absolutely loved it because it took more of the angle. There's no antlered creature or a yeti. Sometimes the Wendigo looks like a yeti. Um, instead it was in fact about the psychosis. And it also, I made the conflation between, uh, that sort of, that hunger and a real rage that drove the character. And one of my favorite stories about, uh, the fear itself episode is that I was trying to figure out what the Wendigo would look like because I knew he wouldn't have the antlers and all of that. And, um, I suddenly thought of Doug Jones hmm. because I had some interaction with Guillermo del Toro over the years. And uh and I thought, oh my god, Doug, who's a fantastic performer in all of Guillermo's movies and several other things. I think you worked with Doug Jones.
0: Yes. The Doug Jones' first film role was as Billy Butcher in Hocus Pocus, which ah, I wrote. That's
1: yeah. fantastic. He's just uh, so wonderful and in a funny way. I made this pitch when I hired Ron Perlman once. I said, Doug, you won't have to wear much makeup. And, you know, some of these actors who sit in a chair for eight hours, you know, and and do fantastic body work, and they're beloved, but they're sort of uh, anonymous. So, indeed, in my story, he's almost without makeup. Just very subtle work that actually was fantastic and made him look even more gaunt. And in that story, that script by Drew McSweeney and...
0: Uh, Scott Shaw and Drew McQueenie, yeah.
1: (laughs) Thank you, thank God. Um, it was fantastic and it uh, depicted a, a guy who'd gone into the woods um, and gone missing and his family at home was waiting for him and he came back like two weeks later and uh, the question was how he survived and all the members of the camping party that went with him were gone. Hmm. So uh, he sits in bed and he's creepier and creepier and the wife starts to feel like he's not himself anymore and of course he's become cannibalistic monster, oh, a wendigo, so to speak. And um, Doug was fantastic, it was a lovely production, I had a great time.
0: Well, let's talk a little about the psychology of the monster. Uh, you've made multiple monster movies, most recently, Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, and there is a lot of psychological thought and depth and texture that you bring to those stories. And what is the monster to you? And And is it the character you most identify?
1: I clearly identified with the monster, but I also had great fear and respect. And in this case, Frankenstein really haunted my youth. I had a poster. Well, first of all, my friend told me that if you paid $1.99, that a robot would come in the mail. And I was young enough to believe him. And he said, oh, yeah, it happened to me. And my dad ran it over in the driveway. And I was like, this is incredible. And I waited and waited. For, it was, you know, advertised in a comic book. And it finally showed up, and it was just a plastic... Uh, a roll-up. <laughs> a roll-up. But, you know, I loved it, and it just sat there across the room, and I would get very scared at night. But at the same time, I saw the outsiderness of being a monster and how he uh, felt alienated and couldn't relate to other people, obviously, you know how it is when you're a monster. So uh, <laughs> I think we all do. I really I took it very personally. And, <laughs> um, and, you know, of course, the other thing is growing up in those days, this was the 70s, um, the only access to horror was through black and white TV, the old horror movies. Or and you then, change
0: the channel like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and
1: you know, you have the rabbit ears. You yeah. get your coat hanger to, I remember. I remember it well. And then, uh, so, and like a fanboy, you know, like a sports guy who knows all the data on the, on the team players, you, you really tracked how the monster, uh, who played it and, you know that Bella Lugosi rejected the role because he didn't want to have the makeup, and then he resented Karloff. The fuck, Karloff! You know, <laughs> for the rest of his life, and all of these wonderful, uh, delicious tales. And Karloff had so much grace, and he was obviously so beautiful as a, a, you know, a figure to receive Jack Pierce's makeup. So all of these great stories, and you read the uh, famous monsters of filmland. I always like to say in those days, you know, the poster and the stills that they chose, that was really your access to the movies. So it was very stimulating to the imagination, the whole world of Universal that made these movies. Then, you know, I did grow up. I remember the day I saw Night of the Living Dead. And I also, I always say that was the fulcrum. You know, that was the moment I, it was still black and white. So it seemed like it was going to be just a good old, somewhat, uh, atmospheric, gothic horror, but it just shattered me. It was so visceral and appalling and real, and it just sort of jumped off the screen, and that sort of maybe changed me forever. And then I grew up in, like, you know, 70s movies, like Scorsese movies and stuff, and I think I wanted to make those two things come together, my romance for the monster and the wolfman and the creature from the Black Lagoon and, and see what they looked like in a Scorsese movie, you know, in in a contemporary tale.
0: Well, you're also native to New York. Do you think that makes a difference as well? Independent film in New York is very different from independent film in L.A. or Chicago or the flyover states.
1: That is true. I mean, you felt... Well, first of all, when I was young, you didn't even know how people could make movies, how it even worked. You mean you could just have that career? It made no sense. It seemed like this magical thing. Even if you read about uh, the actors and the people who... uh, I was a big James Cagney fan, and anybody who can really trace, why? Because of Man of a Thousand Faces. (laughs) James Cagney played Lon Chaney Sr. in this very sweet biopic, and he had a tragic life. Speaking of monsters, he obviously escaped into being uh, a monster and depicting that uh, because his parents were deaf and he felt... uh, Ostracized as a child, and so on, and so and on,
0: and physically torturing himself to create Literally, these monsters. I mean, there's as well. a
1: pathology yeah. there. Now they just give him some Ritalin and and you <laughs> wouldn't have all that makeup, you know, all yeah, that, yeah. all that. And, fantastic. You anyway. <laughs> and you do it digitally anyway. You do it digitally. It's true. Although you know, Shape of Water, Doug Jones still yeah, got into that yeah. costume. It's it's why it's beautiful. Yeah.
0: Um. Well, we not only shared Doug Jones, but you and Guillermo and I shared Ron Perlman uh, no. on your earlier film. Last winter, yeah, and which was very different from any Larry Fessenden film I've ever seen, aside from the cold. Yeah, uh, tell me a little bit about that. You know, Guillermo had used him in Chronos. I'd worked with him first in Sleepwalkers, and then later oh, yeah. in Masters of Horror and Desperation.
1: Cigarette And, burns. and uh,
0: yeah, yeah. So, uh, actually in Carpenter's second one, pro mm. Life. Yeah. Oh, yeah, written exactly. by the same guys who wrote Your Fear Itself. Yeah, Scott it's and Drew. So uh, tell me a little bit about that experience and especially the locations and, and how yeah. that came to be.
1: Well, the bottom line is I made Wendigo in upstate New York. It was a snow film, and I pictured the end of the movie where the monster's running through the woods after The Hunter, this beautiful white snowy landscape with the, the upright trees, and it was very graphic in my mind. Well, all the snow melted, and it was just crushing. <laughs> so it, you see the end of the movie. It's just like sort of a brown... Mess. There's no drama to the imagery, and you know there was no fixing it. So I was mentally scarred, and so I decided to make a sequel somewhere really cold where the snow would not melt. So I decided I'd shoot in Iceland. No, actually, in in northern uh, Alaska, and I wanted to tell a story. As I say, I see the Wendigo story can be very intimate but it also can be um, more societal, the idea of overreach and greed destroying society. So I wanted to make a movie about uh, global warming. And, you know, way up in the north, you drill for oil, or they're trying to. Of course, Trump is letting us. He's let that area open. My movie became true like three months ago, mm-hmm. something I had made a fantasy about, that this very protected, beloved area up there uh, would would never be drilled in, but in my story it was well now it 's true, uh, so we wanted to film in Alaska, and I went up there. It was fantastic, uh, but it, they didn 't have the infrastructure to make movies so then um, my producer found Iceland, so we went there, and I had seen Hellboy along the way, and I just love the bravado that Ron brings, right. you know, and oh, yet yeah. there 's his heart there that was what was great about Hellboy is the sweetness of Ron, mm-hmm. even though he 's an old bastard and a Devil, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So I, uh, I managed to get through to him, and I offered him the role. And my big pitch was like, no makeup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. swear to God, he said, I'll do it. So <laughs> it was sweet. He showed up, and he had an earring. And I was like, well, you're playing kind of a industrial oil man. That seems odd. And he said, I'll tell you why after the shoot, which was his way of saying you have no say in this. <laughs> Which was my very beginning with Ron Perlman. He I can't was... imagine Ron saying no, I, I know, it's hard. Let <laughs> yeah, me explain. Yeah, yeah, okay. It was very much just him and I. Yeah, okay. No, he's, uh, he's a fun- fantastic, robust and, and dear really pal, funny so... guy, too. Yeah, he's really People funny. People
0: don't know how funny Ron Perlman is. Oh, my
1: favorite. Is. When you go to the restaurant with Ron, the lady comes over or the guy, and they say, uh, can I get you anything? And he says, no, just a check. I mean, come on. It's such, good, <laughs> it's such old Bush Belt humor. And <laughs> that is Ron. Uh, yeah. Exactly. He's a rat packer. It, it's yeah. fantastic. So, uh, yeah, and he loves Sinatra, him and Kevin Corrigan. All they talk about is Sinatra and, yeah. uh, Brando. I mean, you'd come upon them at four in the morning and they were just sitting there, you know, like doing imitations and just like, oh my God. Yeah. And Ron had, he gave me like stacks and stacks of, of Sinatra albums. They were fantastic. Anyway, he came and, um, we had just such a warm experience. You know, it's funny being on a set in Iceland, because the crew is talking in Icelandic. And we, we, we made the decision to hire everyone Icelandic, not even our key crew members, because we wanted them to show us the way of the light. And it was an interesting strategy that really, really paid off. It okay. was um Well,
0: the movie's amazing.
1: Yeah, so, and you know, the thing is, is, all my movies are about the location. I'm associated with New York films, but it's the location has a personality. In the same way that I'm interested in environmentalism, it's because the the environment. I mean, this is a crazy town. <laughs> and you, know, you could make a couple of uh, our movies here. Uh, <laughs> has been done once or twice. That's yeah. right. Note to self. Uh, has been done. Uh, anyway, so... It's funny. I was just telling someone about Angel Heart, speaking of Mickey well, Rourke. You and just watched it the other day? They didn't seem to register. Damn kids these days. Come on. Um, anyway... Uh, Iceland was a great experience. Ron was fantastic, and he told me years later the earring was because pirates in the old days would buy jewelry so that the leftover people could afford uh, the funeral, because they And so he wanted to access that sort of journeyman. the idea that this oil man going up to a remote area had that sort of a pirate spirit and, and would want to sort of have him. I, I really loved that insight, and yeah. that he sort of did that on his own, and you know, as a director, I trusted that there was something to it, and I knew that he wanted that, and uh, it's it's great when I finally heard the story.
0: Well, let's talk a little about the difference in directing different kinds of actors. I mean, there are people who want direction, or they want to a uh, safety net there, there are people who don't want any input at all from yeah, you, and absolutely. how you how you suss that out when you start a shoot and, and how you roll with that, because it's different every time out.
1: It's really fun to get a sense of the actor, you know, because uh, they're all different. The main thing you do, and this is sort of a cliche, but it couldn't be more truth, uh, is you give them a safe space. You know, you want them to know that you're paying attention, you understand their choices, you understand innately that there's some anxiety, that they don't make a fool of themselves, in fact, I don't think I'm revealing too much when I tell you that Ron did a scene that was an emotional scene, and you know, in a horror film. But I like to have that and show that these are people going through these extraordinary uh, events. Um, and you know, he came to me after he said, "Just, I don't know if I got it." I said, "Ron, I, I thought it was pretty good." Um, oh, that's a good way to appreciate it. Pretty good, <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. And he said, "All right." Uh, so uh, we did it again, the second time, and, and it was fantastic. He really accessed something. Uh, but every actor's different. James LeGros is, uh, very internal. Ron is a bit more broad. Kevin Corgan, you don't know what's going on. He's a, he's a, <laughs> a beloved, uh, indie actor. Yeah. And, uh, you don't know what you're getting. You're like, Kevin, did you, did you read the scene or what's happening? And yet it's amazing. Every take is, is different and I guess you could say completely spontaneous because you, yeah. you uh, don't know what's happening.
0: Don't you love when an actor surprises you in something you hadn't Absolutely. thought of and it's
1: like, Wow. Yeah, it's amazing when you write something and you think, well, I can hear the music of this line, and then you get something different. It's it's really the reason to make the movie. You know, I have that slight Hitchcock thing of you know, once you've sort of figured out what you want, it's like, oh god, now do I really have to go through with this? Right, the planning, the work is done. It's so nice, and it's perfect in your head, and then you know you actually have to do it. But then you have those surprises. And I believe on every side, you know, the. The unexpected rainstorm that happens, or, right. or, the, or know, something in the weather, up, or or the cameraman <laughs> drops the. Um, yeah, all of that. You really have to be in the moment. I mean, you know how it is.
0: Well, we were talking about the environment and the last winter. Uh, social issues seem to play an important part in the movies that you make, and horror is the greatest place for metaphor. Yeah. But you go beyond metaphor. You hit it dead on. You hit issues, right. and not just metaphorically speaking. So tell me what filmmaking means to you other than entertaining an audience.
1: Well, I just think that the journey of life, you have to be engaged with uh, moral choices. You know, when you decide to help a friend in a time of need, that's a moral choice, so, or it's a ethics, or it's behavior. So I feel like one's art should also engage and, and maybe not preaching and certainly not preaching and even a documentary can't really tell the, the absolute truth although nowadays it's a little slippery to talk about truth because we have to honor it you know and try to protect it in these days where it's being disparaged you know there is certain objective realities and um, but I digress the point is, is that I think there's a full engagement with everything. And I don't consider issues and entertainment to be separate. Mm-hmm. And I just think that it's all the same. You're trying to understand the world, how to behave with each other. I mean, the real crisis is uh, other people. I guess Sartre right. said, hell is other people. This fucking thing, man. Hell is this particular earphone. <laughs> <laughs> is it okay, guys? I'm so sorry. Is that better? Um, anyway... What are you going to do? Uh, you That just is what interests me. And then issues of the environment. I, I just find there's such a lack of compassion for things bigger than ourselves, you know. So the environment just seems like, well, that's how you... Don't you have this respect for this greater thing? And wouldn't we want to engage with how to treat it? This is the thing that is sustaining us. And, you know, you bring religion into it. All my movies are about sort of mythologies and what people believe. And if they're believing in false gods or blaming, you know, in this movie I made called Habit, the guy thinks his girlfriend is a vampire, but he's clearly an alcoholic, so, <laughs> like, is he just scapegoating her, or what's happening, or is it or true, you yeah. see, that's what's fun, you see, the worst thing would be to make a movie just about an alcoholic, I gotta have a vampire in there to make it entertaining, <laughs> uh, so similarly, The Last Winter is about climate change, but it's also about, you know, what compels us to explore further. And I wanted, you know, Ron Perlman to be um the greatest, funnest villain. You know, I mean, he's not a villain per se, but he's clearly the guy who's destroying the earth and, right. you know, being aggressive and all that. But I wanted the funnest guy. And then right. I have the environmentalist as kind of a putz, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love James LeGros, but I wanted a character that was, you know.
0: The character was a putz. The character yeah, was exactly. a putz. Yeah.
1: Uh, but, you know, that was my point. I made another film about a uh, the section. you know that's not how to start your career making a movie about animal rights um, <laughs> there you go but someone had to do it uh anyway there again i had the environmentalist a little uh, weird anyway i don't consider it uh, propaganda well but some it, do
0: <laughs> you although you spend much of your career in the horror genre it's very grounded in the real world yeah there are brushes with the supernatural Mm. Uh, but it's really grounded it, it, very much like Stephen King, very of little course. of his stuff is supernatural beyond right. what you can make truly believable and, yeah. and more fearsome in that regard yeah. and, and what, what do you think how do you want to scare people when you try to create that fear intention
1: well that's a beautiful question I'm afraid my movies aren't scary, they're sad, <laughs> if you just <laughs> made it through this movie you know that the ultimate emotion is sort of a sadness not a a melancholia. A melancholia. Uh, so be it. You make the movies that come from within. And I remember I looked at the edit and I said, well, I guess that's the movie I wanted to make. I forgot to make it scary. <laughs> uh, no, but there is so much fear pain. But there's and pain. fear and pain. Yeah. My point is that's actually what's scary. You know, I always say, even if you're getting killed in the shower, what's really sad is all your friends are going to receive from your life. You're never going to fulfill... You're never gonna give the money back, <laughs> you know. You, it's it's life interrupted, and there's a sadness even in the violence, or at least that's what interests me. I mean, I feel like the kids running away from the Texas chainsaw dude. There's something, so, especially the guy in the wheelchair. You're like, oh, <laughs> uh, you know, that's very sad in my opinion. Um, uh, there's I think just, we all share that opinion. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's something about it's being sure. someone else's will overcoming your own, you know. So anyway, uh, but. Uh, I do, I also love the uncanny because I think the world is so much more mysterious. You know, it's funny. I don't embrace a religious perspective and I don't completely trust saying science is everything. So there is that other, there's that unknowable thing. Which the border. Is so much, really. Yeah, exactly. And I love Algernon Blackwood. He's a writer. Oh, by the way, he wrote the Wendigo. Uh, <laughs> I heard of it. But uh, he has beautiful stories. Uh, about sort of this uncanny relationship we have to to the natural world. And, And one of my regrets about modern life is that we're so in our phones and we're so connected that you actually lose a little, uh, well, that would be my critique of modern life. It's your job to be an old man on the porch bitching about the kids. <laughs> so I'm doing my job uh, yeah. overtime. I work 24 <laughs> seven. Uh, I just feel like, you know, let's, well, it's back to nature and all those issues. Believe me, I don't fucking go hiking or stuff. I sit at home, but I, You're I, a New Yorker I I'm after glad all. nature's out there <laughs> and we should leave it be. Uh, so I don't know. It's a, I clearly am very conflicted. <laughs>
0: well, but even to the title Depraved for a Frankenstein movie, tell me about that. Because that has more deeply social connotations that we right. discussed the other night.
1: I do feel that, uh, well, for one thing, it's always an invitation for the audience to reflect on the title. I did make a movie called Habit, and it's about, I told you, The Alcoholic, it's about the little things you do every day that uh make you so thirsty uh, it's the little things that sort of wear you down and the little compromises and the little this and the little lies you tell um that leads to a bigger picture, so I wanted to call it habit, not addiction, which by the way was taken yes. uh not <laughs> hunger which was taken um but I didn't want an aggressive word, I wanted something that was just made you lean in and think a little bit about it, and similarly depraved makes you think, oh, this is going to be, oh, man, it's going to be gore and, and you know, ah, oh, depraved. Sex and violence. Yes. Damn, I knew I forgot something. <laughs> but, um, in fact, clearly, as you go through the movie, you're like, well, the monster isn't really depraved. And then you go, well, well, what is, who's depraved? And then I'd like to believe that you start realizing, oh, well, these other people are acting a little bit depraved. And so you start thinking about the title in relationship to the whole movie, and and where, and I I would argue that, well, Polidori in the museum says we are all depraved, meaning human nature. You know what does he say? From the bomb to the blade, we love destruction, and that's sort of the real sadness I'm hooking into in this movie. Is just uh I don't know what it is. It's all very sad, and as the monster becomes an adult through this film, he realizes that the world is unfair, that his father figures are completely bananas. One of them has PTSD and the other guy is an asshole. And so there's nowhere to turn and then the only nice person in the movie gets killed um by the monster. So you know he's yeah. depraved. Yeah. Well these guys it. <laughs> those of you who are asleep you can recatch it later.
0: So what what about your process? I mean did you start with the idea that you wanted to do a modern version of Frankenstein? Did you start with the concept of depraved? Did you start, how did it begin for you and how did you follow through? Theme first, story first.
1: I think, um, I like the idea of telling it from the monster's point of view. Just, and, you know, in some way, they all, all the old movies have some sense of that. But the book is very much, uh, there's a whole middle section where he says, hey, yo, check out what I've been through. And then you go. Maybe in, in his other work. words, but he yeah. He says I, it in I a different way. One. It's, yeah. you know, he's ye old, ye old, yo. But, um, <laughs> so, uh, <coughs> that seemed like a great and that's just my I guess my natural inclination is to take these fantastic stories that I love and sort of make them feel contemporary so and put it in a world that you live exactly in. and and hopefully then you go oh that was a great story actually it, it actually relates to stuff going on now so I'm like a magpie you know I, I take images that I like I, I was thinking about um, PTSD and just how we've treated the soldiers and the adventures in Iraq and, you know, in the time of Bush, it was such an outrage that uh, that we went in on, on false pretenses. Uh, in my opinion, I thought it was obvious from the start. I didn't trust our politicians. Uh, I didn't believe their line. I understood being angry about 9-11, but I felt they did a a shell game on us. So, and then I just regret the soldiers that are over there and there's something about the way our politics are that, you know, we just send poor people over uh, so and nobody feels the effect. You don't have a movement like in Vietnam because everybody was going and on and on and all this kind of outrage and that just felt like... But I read this amazing book called On Call in Hell and it was about a field surgeon from Iraq and he uh, he figured out that if you take the hospital into the field, you can save more guys. So he was just like, somebody who just wanted to do the right thing and figure out how to help the the guys and gals out there. And I just thought, that's cool. What if he went crazy and came back and wasn't finished with his business? And then I thought, well, that's interesting. Now I've made the doctor a good guy or troubled and understand him. And then I thought, yeah, but you know what? He's got some scummy friend who would goad him and sort of try to take advantage and get the credit and make some money. And, you know, so then I came up with... uh Polidori which is of course a reference to one of the people who was there on the fateful night when Mary Shelley 18 years old wrote Frankenstein. That's cool.
0: That is amazing.
1: Way cool. (coughs) Polidori wrote like a 20 page vampire story which is sweet but (laughs) Sweet as the word. Mary kicked his ass. (laughs) uh,
0: As the owner of a film production company as a producer and as a businessman, what do you look for in the films that you want to make through the Glass Eye Picks band?
1: Well, the businessman part is very hard, but what I well, do. I want to talk about that too. Yeah, no, I mean, what I do is I try to follow the instincts that I have. Um, and
0: But you're not looking for people to make Larry Fessenden movies. You're
1: no, are looking but for uh, people uh, with a voice. I want them to have a, an authentic <clears throat> voice of their own and to really uh, to seek out. Something probably in the genre. The businessman part of me says that genre films are best because it is a, a well, it's a it's a genre that has an audience that is dedicated and likes exploring um, all the nooks and crannies. You know, you can make ghost stories and monster movies and sci-fi stories and and splatter films. It's just such a and comedies. I suppose there's so much uh, fantastic. Um, it's a big tent. I love it. So, sorry, I'm really the worst techie guy here today. Um, Can't take you anywhere. I know it's so true. And then before the movie, I just walked out and ruined Landon's speech. I mean, oh my god. <laughs> um, but uh, I just think uh, horror is, you know, the genre is the is the cell. So you don't need the name stars. You don't That's need movie sort of stars yet. Yeah,
0: but but what yeah. do you look for? You've worked with a lot of first time feature film directors. Yep. and that would make me nervous to yeah. hire somebody to do a film and put all of that responsibility on someone who had not gone through that valley of fire.
1: I, I think it's because I'm willing to sort of be there with them and mentor them. I mean, in a way I should rebrand and call it a film school because I really try to take people who I think have the fire in their belly and tell them... And I'm I'm quite boring. I always bring up Hitchcock. I say, this is the way you make a movie. You've got to plan it in advance. When you get on set, you can throw that plan away, but at least you have it. Uh, and then I really believe in, well, the other thing is I use young people, so they don't cost as much. And that's hard to sustain that for 30 years because, you know, you need new people. So you have to be uh, on your toes. And I'm always saying we can do it for less. And there's nothing more heartbreaking because you do want that crane or You imagine something from a movie. Uh, but. I say, well, how else can we do it? You want a crane? I got something in the back. It, it, it'll go up. Uh, you know, we can't necessarily pan, but, but it's a drone. We can yeah. do that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I just really believe. I never say compromise the vision. I just say we've got to be efficient and smart. How are we going to be able to do that on this kind of budget? And I believe in uh, treating the creatives with honor and the crew. Everybody is important, including the craft service guy and whoever's recycling. <laughs> and we don't let water onto our sets, the water bottle thing. I buy everybody a water bottle and say, that's it. You get that one, you refill it over here. You know, I try to create an environment. And you can only experiment with people when they're young. <laughs> that's why first, second time directors, they working for someone else. Uh, <laughs>
0: I think uh, Roger Corman was was said to have related. Um, anybody who's made more than three pictures for me must not be very good. <laughs>
1: it's, it's, that's it's also terribly sad. I mean, I lose them all. Ty West, uh, Jim Mickle, they all move on. Even Jen Wexler, my beloved. Uh, right, the Ranger. She produced so many movies for me. Fantastic. Kept the company going for five years. But she finally directed The Ranger and had a great run of it. It played here last year and. uh I had to let her go with great blessings and know that she's now going to direct and 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 just move on. But well, it's I like the
0: pride that. of parenthood. It way, really
1: is, know? and it's exhausting. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, Glenn McQuaid, other people I've uh, loved and collaborated with, and um, but that's cool. I love it. And but what do
0: you good. look for when somebody comes to you with a project? What's what's a glass eye pick?
1: It's this spirit I've described and sort of uh, really wanting to offer yourself in the art you know it's not uh, conceiving of what would be great uh you know for the box office or even so you know even mickey keating uh has also come out of my shop oh he was an intern um you know he's a great cineast he loves all kinds of movies and he knows how to put a movie together it's just fantastic to watch there i'd say there's craftsmanship and i love what he can do then there are other people who uh and some of them outside of the horror genre, but who I love because they really want—they're uh, trying to grapple with some of the things that matter to me. Uh, and then there's someone like Glenn McQuaid, who made—we made, we made a, a, a period piece, grave robbing picture, in which I play <laughs> Willie Grimes, and uh, we shot uh, you in know, Staten Island. But it looks like it was made by the BBC. It's fantastic, <laughs> and we had a lot of fog in that. We'd fog it up—that was the main uh, direction. Um, and we shot in celluloid. I mean, nothing that oh, made sense, but that's... it was just fantastic and had this text, tactile feeling to it. And, uh, in that case, I just get sweeped up in other people's dreams. It's actually, uh, what happens. And of course, as a result, I'm so sick of these introductions. They're very nice, but like, here's Larry hasn't made a movie in like seven years. The idea is that I'm sitting on my bed in my jammies, like, <laughs> doing what? No, it's, I'm out making everyone else's movies yeah. for them. So. It's fine.
0: As having a company that produces films, distribution has changed so radically over the years and becoming more and more difficult. Everybody wants their entertainment for free. Nobody's paying for movie. It's, um, it's been so hard to find a home. You know, with Nightmare Cinema, we're doing a limited theatrical run day and date with VOD and then you've got streaming deals in place and the like. Tell me how it has affected your business plan.
1: Uh, badly. And you know what's, the whole way Glass I started is that film Habit didn't really catch on. It didn't get into the fancy festivals, Sundance and the like. And um, I was in sort of despair, because I had spent a certain amount of money on this movie. In those days, I'd spent $60,000. Mm-hmm. Seems like a lot of money. And um, I I realized, well, this thing could just die. So I put it out myself. Uh, I did a tour of the States, 40 theaters by the time we were done, and we got a good review from Roger Ebert and other sort of wonderful seminal experiences, and I got to know all the theater owners, um, the Lemleys in L.A., it's still fantastic, and that's a name beloved to any horror fan, you know, it's on the front of Dracula and and Freaks and so on, but... um and then the guys in New York, the guys in Chicago, places in Florida, Texas, you know, now you would go to the Alamo, but before Alamo there were other places. It was very uh, fun to feel like part of showbiz. And I would be designing the, the, the ads for the newspapers, and I'd lay it out, and you'd be like, what quote should I use here, and so on. So anyway, it's this idea of the whole gamut of soup to nuts making films. You're making them, but you're distributing them you're making the posters and you're just like a carny. It's like you're in the circus from the old days. It has a nice tactile feel. Um, anyway, I, then Ty West, he was an intern for me. Um, and as it goes in my life, this kid was working for me. And within like three weeks, I was working for him. You know, he was <laughs> like, can I use the equipment to do this and that? And can you maybe make some titles for this and that? And I said, kid, when you graduate from college, you come to me. We'll make a feature together. Well, he came like three weeks after college, and he had several pitches, and I liked the one that had a little environmental whiff to it. It was about bats uh, that had come because of some environmental thing. It was typical. Ty obviously knew that would be my soft spot, so he tossed me a bone. But uh, So then we made the movie, and uh, I got Glenn, who's another guy, but he was working in a place that made CGI, and this was back um, in the early 2000s, so that was really exotic, that someone could make us CGI bats, and they flew around. Um, so anyway, that was cool, but my real point was to your question, so I used the same model with Ty, and we put his movie out in theaters uh, on our own, and it gave it a little juice, and then Showtime bought it for twice what we made it for, mm-hmm. and then I thought, this is fantastic. And then we sold foreign and, and we really made some money. So then I thought, maybe I'll do this producing thing. <laughs> and then we made a bunch of other movies. Uh, James McKenney is sort of a, um, what I call my outsider artist. He makes very sort of regional feeling films. He made a super eight, uh, futuristic movie, black and white about robots, starring Angus Scrim. It's the most marvelous <laughs> film you'll ever see. It's called Automatons, and it's, uh, it's, a real treasure and we got to know Angus and he became our pal and he Sweet. loved the spirit of Glassa. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, but now theatrical is not much yeah. a part of your company and, and yeah. tell me how you really deal with that metamorphosis.
1: Well, we still try to do local theaters and, uh, and you know, even the Ranger had a, a bit of a run, though it was bought by Shudder and Shudder's model doesn't require any theatrical, but I still feel like it It gives the movie a little oomph. You get a bad review in the New York Times, you can guarantee it, but uh, you know, it just <laughs> feels like it's real. Now this is also generational, I don't think the kids care about it, but it, it, there's some filmmakers who still romanticize, so there's that, but your real question was the distribution, and in the old days you had um, you had your DVD release, which was fantastic, VHS before that, and that was a whole extra chunk of change. And then you had your, um, you know, you had theatrical, though that was usually breaking even if if that. And then you had a television sale. And so you had all these ways to and sort of look for, and you had all the international, and you had ways to look forward to uh, piecing together your budget again. Now, I remember when we did House of the Devil. Um, Ty West. Ty West, uh, that was his bigger movie. He'd already made three movies with us. Is that even true? Two movies, three movies? Um And uh, yeah, they always come back to Glass Eye. Ty mm-hmm. couldn't get his film uh, financed, so he made Trigger Man. He called me and said, "I'm having." Oh no, I know. He actually made Cabin Fever too. And he said, oh, right. "Can I just come back to Glass Eye and make <laughs> a little movie <laughs> yeah. um, in the old Scott style?" So um, we, uh, you know, all of those got released. That came out on Kino. Does
0: most of your funding come from streaming companies or VOD? Oh, I know. I
1: was saying. Yeah. So the uh, House of the Devil, it disappeared, and it was the first time I realized you didn't ever get reports from streaming companies. It was they so weird. They just buy
0: it once and then they're done.
1: They buy it, and there's some, yeah, and and it's um it's different because in the old days you could literally see how many uh CD uh, whatever they're called DVDs were sold, and and then. Uh, that's the number. And if you just sold another 3,000, you'll hit your mark. You know, all of this. You could look at that stuff. So my financing. Then we made a great deal with MPI, a great company in Chicago, uh, Dark Sky. And they made House of the Devil and Stakeland by Jim Mickle, uh, Innkeepers by Ty, and a number of, and we, st- we made Stakeland 2 with them. So we had a great run, or we're having, I'd like to say, yes. we can still call them. Yeah. um but uh it's it's kind of tough
0: but it, it, it it's a different world and the independent world is it's so hard to get screens It's it, yeah. but you have to compete you go to iTunes and see how many thousands of right. films that are available to
1: you how do you choose one
0: what do you look for when you are looking for horror entertainment on your on your own? What's the kind of movies that you... I don't have
1: time to watch movies. Are you crazy? <laughs> I'm making them. <laughs> That's I, uh, right. It's kind of more word of mouth in the community, I find. Like, Or, you know, there's these great gems that ironically, I've seen midnight does. Uh, they made a movie called Backcountry. It's a, it's a hmm. bear attack movie. But there you go. I mean, it's a great little film, and I love that kind of thing. But you're right. How do you find that? I guess I... Well, someone recommended it. Yes. So it is word of mouth. That's really what you got to count on.
0: Well, we have to wrap it up pretty soon, but I want to find out where it all started for you. What was your childhood like? Were you an only child? Did you have siblings? Mm-hmm. Were you an outsider? Did you feel like you were a part of a group of schoolmates or something? Were you the weird horror kid?
1: Yeah, I had... Two brothers, they're older than me, and they would always fight. So I was the peacemaker, and I think that has to do with my instinct to try to find commonality, you know. Um, but a very loving. Sounds one. very familiar. Yeah. yeah. And I was the youngest, so that was weird. And my older brother, when I was born, came to my parents and said, I think we've had enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you could tell he was the alpha male, and the middle brother resented being the middle brother, and I was the one who was like, they would literally say, "Whose team are you on?" Wow. So these mental, you know, no wonder I'm obsessed with morality. I was like, right. I, I, "How do I choose?" <laughs> uh, so all of that. But it was a lovely childhood. My parents were very sweet. They didn't understand showbiz. They really didn't. Uh, I mean, they liked the arts. So it was how a did very you get nurturing. into it, though? What? You know, I do believe you just are born with it. You mm-hmm. know, like uh,
0: was it first acting for you?
1: I was an actor. I wanted to be an actor, but I had stage fright, and I also, more importantly, wanted to do everything else. You know, I like to draw, I like the atmosphere, I always like to pair music with, you know, the emotional content of a scene. So, um, I really, it wasn't enough to to just act, though, you know, that's sort of uh, a home turf and I'm a natural ham and all of that. But, uh, and then... Uh, but how
0: did I, you make that transition to writer-director from... from in after? high
1: school I started yeah. directing plays. Absolutely. So I made a production. It's just like Wes Anderson. You know how he, whatever is it, in Rushmore or something? But I would, I put on One floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest as a play. <laughs> and you must like, have played the Nicholson part. I wanted to. Oh, so bad. <laughs> but I gave it to this other guy. People don't know that
0: Larry is one of the premier Jack Nicholson impersonators. <laughs> and
1: it's because every time I go to the airport, they say, are you Jack Nicholson? I'm <laughs> like, no, but if you let me through the line, I'll, I'll do a couple of lines from The Shining. Nicholson, uh, <laughs> pre- <laughs> Nicholson pre-check. pre-check. Yes. Yeah, oh, that would be nice. Uh, but, uh, I, um, yeah, I uh, did but, plays <laughs> and then, you know what? I got a Super 8 camera and I realized, Wait a minute. This tells the story. Where I put this camera actually completely affects the experience. And I remember seeing the first Hitchcock movie I ever saw, Suspicion, and I knew there was something going on in that movie, even though it was just a Saturday afternoon, Cary Grant, and I was like, "What's going on here? This is so cool!" And uh, and and so I and this all sounds weird to anybody who's younger than me because. Uh, now everybody knows how movies are made and you know everything, the whole way the sausage is created. But you didn't know that in those days. There were no making ofs. There was no behind the scenes. You had fan magazines, but half of that was lies and just talking about the, the movie, movie stars. stars yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: But you discovered that there was a language and vocabulary to filmmaking.
1: Yeah. Most, and to this day, that's the only reason I do this. It's not fun raising money. <laughs> uh, it's fun to hang out with you, man. But, uh, <laughs> Otherwise it's basically a nightmare. And I uh but I love seeing images cut together and the impact of that and then you throw a little sound effect on and it's just so invigorating and uh I I love the idea of, you know, being a rock and roll filmmaker. I've always loved just and I used to you know, that's how I brought my kid up. You know, most people are playing ball with their kid, but I would get a camera and I'd say, All right, Put on the Lord of the Rings cloak and get that on. I'd say, come on, mess up your hair. What are you doing? And then we'd run around. And like, I still, if you look at those early movies, I'm proud of every shot. They're as good as anything I've ever done with, you know, a crew. It's just like, because one shot leads to the next, to the next. And oh, we need a miniature because we need a watch out of the castle. Come on, let's go build the castle. And then we build the castle. And two days later, we're like... Uh, coming up the castle Uh and then I got to play the orc and get shot and I told him how I use the same effect how you do the how you swish pan to the arrow <laughs> it's a little embarrassing that's how much money I had for depraved just like oh well use the swish pan gag it always works it's yeah. great it's in my kids movie <laughs> oh yeah, one, dear
0: one last thing when we met at the Stanley Festival which is the pregenitor to this uh, festival the Overlook yeah. um, you were doing Tales from Beyond the Pale, which is your audio drama series. Yeah. So tell me how that came about and what the intent behind that. Is.
1: Well, Glenn McQuaid, I've referenced him a couple of times. He made the, the grave robbing picture. And uh, basically, we just were driving with the kid again. Poor guy. He was listening to Boris Karloff on these old radio plays I would play for him. And Glenn said, classic picture do do radio play." And I said, Glenn, we're going to. And so we conceived of... Uh, we called all the filmmakers we knew who were out of work and we said, do you have a script in the drawer that could be 30 minutes and done with audio only? And a lot of people like Paul Salat and... Um, oh, now I have to remember everybody's name. But Graham Resnick and all of our pals, JT Petty, they all sent uh, scripts in. And then we figured out how some people could produce them on their own or we'd record them for them in the city. and. Uh, we had 10 tales, and then I said, well, I'll do the host. And so I, uh, greetings, audiophiles, and then, you know, you get into the Tales from Beyond the Pale. They're online. Uh, we're going to start them as a podcast in a matter of weeks or months, and, and then we'll, we'll release each one that's already been done and start to do a few new ones. But we've done five seasons, and then we started doing them live. We did them at uh, The Overlook uh, two or three t- years in a row, and they're wacky. Uh, but they're fully immersive. The thing is, they're not like, old-timey, you know, ah, gee, what a dame, you know, click, clack, click, <laughs> clack, click. It's much more, um, they're truly immersive, and some of them are so distressing, Simon Rumley, uh, <laughs> that you don't even, you know, want to hear them ever again. But uh, we had to give that one an X rating. It's so yeah. upsetting. <laughs> um, and Paul Solitz was exactly like uh, one of the episodes in your show, Is of somebody who's doing the... Uh, Plastic surgery it was ah, very nice. disturbing. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: plastic surgery stories are always good. They're very... Uh, oh, well, yeah, that it's was great.
1: Yeah. Um, mixed movie was great fun. So,
0: Larry Fessenden, king of all media, uh, king of hyphenates, I, I don't think you can have <laughs> it. I told you about hyphens- my puppet shows. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, another hyphen to add. Yes. Anyway, uh, writer, producer, director, actor, entrepreneur, and uh audio <laughs> I don't know how to put that <laughs> audio But thank you so although. much for sharing this with us and 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 I hope we can do this again soon and really appreciate your time here in New Orleans at the overlook Film Festival thank you so much for so thank much. you thank you If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to Producer Joe at Joe Russo tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, MickGarrisInterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.